1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, David James Gonzalez, and I'm pleased to be speaking with George Sanchez, author of Boyle Heights, How a Los Angeles Neighborhood Became the Future of American Democracy, published within the American Crossroads series by the University of California Press in 2021. George Sanchez is professor of American Studies and Ethnicity and History at the University of Southern California. He is the author of the award winning book, Becoming Mexican American Ethnicity, Culture, and Identity in Chicano Los Angeles, published by Oxford University Press in 1993. Uh, His teaching and scholarship focuses on historical and contemporary topics of race, gender, ethnicity, labor, and immigration. He has published several articles in major research publications, public publications, and co-edited several volumes as well. He is past president of the American Studies Association and the 2020 to 2021 president of the Organization for American Historians. Hello, George, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies.
0: Hi, DJ. How are you doing?
1: Well, it's great to have you on, uh, George, again, as we're coming out of, uh, hopefully, um, maybe coming back into some type of normal. Uh, and excited to have you speaking with our audience today. And if we can, we'd just like to begin by having you tell us a, a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Um, I'm a first-generation college student. Um, <clears throat> both my parents uh, emigrated from Mexico in the 1950s. Uh, and I was born in Boyle Heights uh, in 1959. Um, I grew up in various places places around Los Angeles. My parents moved around and as did I with them. And uh, then left uh, here at 17 to go to college in the East Coast. Uh, Did my undergraduate work at Harvard and my PhD work at Stanford. And uh, I've been at USC for the past 24 years. Um, My first job was at UCLA. Then I went to the University of Michigan and uh, came back. So uh, here to Los Angeles to USC so uh, that's a short biography.
1: I appreciate that and if you wouldn't mind if I can ask you I love how you brought up again your you know first gen roots uh would you mind just briefly discussing you know some of the initiatives that that you've um you know taken throughout your career to support first gen students um both at u s c and other places sure so
0: i've I've uh done a number of things over the time I've been at u s c um I've uh, been a vice dean for diversity, and in that role, I've uh, started uh, most of USC's programs for first-generation college students. Uh, That also includes programs for uh, students who came out of foster care youth and who were homeless before they arrived at USC. Um, I also run the Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship Program, which uh, tries to identify sophomores and juniors that might go on to become faculty members in the future. I've done a lot of work with the, uh, McNair program, uh, now at USC called the gateway program. Um, and, uh, also I've done a lot of, uh, public historical work. So, um, goes back to, uh, and a lot of it around Boyle Heights. So it goes back to, uh, uh, working with the Japanese American national museum and an exhibition they did, um, in the, in 2001, 2002 on Boyle Heights. Um, I work with the Jewish Historical Society of Southern California um, in a project called um, History in a Box, in which we prepared boxes for fourth grade teachers when they're teaching California history, teaching about the immigrant past of Boyle Heights, um, and then they asked us to do a variety of other boxes. And then uh, for the last five years, I've been working on the Boyle Heights Museum, which is... um, uh, partnership with Casa 0101 in Boyle Heights, uh, which was founded by Josefina Lopez, uh, the playwright who wrote uh, Real Women Have Curves. And uh, we work with her to do exhibitions for um, Boyle Heights residents on Boyle Heights history. And we are actually finishing up our fourth exhibition right now. Um, so, yeah, done all those things
1: and continue
0: to find more ways to get in trouble at USC. <laughs>
1: Thanks for that. Uh, I appreciate you bringing up your public history work. I think that's a great way to segue into this book. And by saying, can you talk about the role that all that public history work played in, uh, you know, getting you to work on this book for for this period of time? Um, And, you know, some of my thoughts while I was finishing up the book and I was thinking is, um, you know, man, just getting a sense of all that public history work that, that you did over these years as a type of you know methodology that influenced this work. I mean, we, we, we look at oftentimes scholarly work like this and, and all the archival research that's done, and, and, and that's a part of it. And the oral history is a part of it, and that's great. But if you could speak particularly to that connection of what did all that public history work do to get you to, to see that this is a project, this is a book that had to be written. Sure. Um,
0: Well, I'll go back to the 1990s when I was an assistant professor at UCLA. um, And I started uh, work on this project for a couple of different reasons. One was that, um, you know, being trained in uh, Mexican-American history um, and my first book sort of centering on the Mexican immigrant experience, um, I realized that as I was going through and, and working on that book, that every time I would come across Mexican interaction with other folks, I kind of set it aside, thought it was interesting, but it wasn't the major focus of that book. So I put it aside and and I kept doing that over and over and over again, realizing that particularly in Boyle Heights, um, there was a lot of it. Um, And so I was always intrigued by that. And then um, in 1992, the book was was in press um, and as it was released, you know, it was the aftermath of the LA riots in 1992, and and uh, a lot of people would ask me, "Oh, well, you know, how does your book talk about the LA riots?" And I, and it really <laughs> didn't, um, as most history books aren't as contemporary. Um, and and so, um, but I kept thinking that you know one of the things around the LA riots was that people kept asking. Um, You know, can we all get along? Can we get along in multiracial neighborhoods? Isn't it really strange that people are living together in South Los Angeles? And isn't that the cause of so much of the tension? Mm -hmm. And and I knew that I had all of this um, history that I had sort of put in the back corner on Boyle Heights and the way it it, uh, uh, groups got together. And so I I decided to go back to that work and see if I could um, dig up more history. And and what I really wanted was. a kind of sense of how, on the ground, people uh, people got together. People lived their daily lives in mixed race uh, communities. Um, I ta- taught a course at UCLA that very specifically, um, uh, where we we, we recruited uh, Me- uh, Chicano students through Mecha. We recruited Japanese American students through the Asian American organization. We recruited. Jewish students through various Jewish student organizations and actually together then everyone had to interview someone who grew up in the neighborhood and that was very um, revealing and the discussions in the class were very, very revealing. So I went on from that, um, left Los Angeles uh, pretty soon after that, but was recruited to, to do work on this Japanese American National Museum uh, exhibition that they wanted to do and head up the research team. And we had a multiracial group of researchers who were digging deep into the 1930s and 40s and people who had grown up there. And that was really, um, it was a revelation. And and part of what was happening for me was the kind of stories that I wanted to be able to tell. We were actually digging up as we interviewed people who had grown up there, weren't famous necessarily, but but just, you know, about their experiences. And that kept coming back into what, what we did. Um, and so I got very excited about being able to work on that book, got back to USC and started the process and so wrote bits by bit by bit. But it really required me to be to retrain myself in um, Jewish American history, in Japanese American history um, and other other forms of, of uh, ur- urban and ethnic history that I hadn't really had a, a lot of a training in. So that took a while. Of course, I became a dean. I did all kinds of things, and it wasn't until um, you know I stepped down from being a dean where I really felt I could finish this book up. So I published a number of different articles along the way, and uh, finally wrote the last couple of chapters more on the contemporary period. And um, you know, felt at the end that I had really covered a lot of ground um, you know, for Borough Heights, and it, it required that kind of dexterity to go back and forth between. The histories of a variety of different ethnic groups, but come up with new ways to talk about that history where people were interacting. Um, chapters would be written differently; it wouldn't be just talking about each group individually, but it would be really the way in which they interact and how to put the stories together.
1: Well, thanks for that. It you got me thinking about uh, again. I mean, similar decisions and choices we make when we're in the archive. Um, you come up you know, on interest, material that's interesting, but it doesn't directly, again, relate to that current project, and um, you, you mentioned that, you're, you know, you work with the community, you work with teaching students. Do you also see that, uh, you know, the, say the field of history itself, um, I mean, this is very much American studies centric as well, is, is there something that's been changing in the field um, in these disciplines, scholarly disciplines, that maybe more embrace this type of analysis now? Um,
0: oh yeah, certainly. I mean, I think what's one of the things that's occurred, and some of this is has happened by uh, uh, with students of mine, which is that there's the more they they delve deep into local history, they realize that um there's a kind of a relational history that has to be told uh, in which uh, things that affect one group um, and the ways in which a group is treated might, in fact uh, be, um, translate into the way another group is treated. So, Natalia Molina um, is probably one historian who's well known for that. And of course, we worked that out. She was a student of mine. So, we worked that through in courses that she had taken uh, with me. And, um, you know, that's a very important new way of thinking about race and the way it's constructed that it's not simply uh, in relationship to one group, but um, the ways in which um, the history unfolds for one group may in fact influence another group. Um, the other part is that, um, I've always thought a lot about the, the ways in which, uh, people learn to be uh, American, uh, Mm -hmm. as they, as they as they are immigrants into communities. And if that community is multiracial, um, then they're learning that as part of an American, uh, status, an American condition. And, um, depends on when it is. It depends on how it unfolds. But I think that's a really important part of understanding people's identity formation. Um, so all of this has become more commonplace in U.S. history and particularly U.S. urban history. Um, but, you know, when when I started the project, certainly uh, people tended to write histories of the body or histories of the ghetto that focused on single ethnic groups. Um, mm-hmm. And more and more, I think people are finding that that's not sufficient um, to really understand the complexity of urban space. Uh, certainly in the 20th or 21st century.
1: Right, right. And Boyle Heights creates, uh, I think, perhaps I'm trying to think of you know other communities, uh, and 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 there are others I think in the United States, but that have that can provide this type of case study, right, where you know multiracialism is. The kind of shared experience, right? A, a neighborhood that as, you know, maybe using our common, you know, parlance or vernacular has is, is always kind of been majority-minority uh, or minority-majority, which, whichever one prefers, right? Uh, in that way. And so you state the goal of the book is to relate this, you know, story of this interracial or multiracial type of solidarity that exists in, you know, Boyle Heights as this, as, you know, the neighborhood develops, it's developing with Los Angeles. So can you take us back to an early Los Angeles or the early development of Boyle Heights and, and tell us what was that like? Where does, and you know, how does this neighborhood begin, you know, as, you know, a piece of Los Angeles on its east side? Sure. Um,
0: like a lot of, uh, developing neighborhoods, um, in 19th century, uh, Los Angeles, um, it was originally intended, uh, uh, for for profit and 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 aimed at um, more upper class white migrants. Most of most of Los Angeles was aimed that way in the 1870s and 80s as the railroads connected Los Angeles to the rest of the, uh, the United States. Um, and I was intrigued by how that developed and why Boyle Heights essentially lost out on that bid. Mm -hmm. Um, Other communities uh, were much more successful. And I compare Boyle Heights, for example, to Pasadena that started later, but in fact, uh, could very quickly uh, build uh, Orange Grove Avenue and and palm trees and a, a set of Indiana investors would come and Developed that, or so many of the beach communities by the turn of the century were were attracting migrants. And Boyle Heights, partly because it was across the river, partly because the the terrain had not yet been uh, developed sufficiently with bridges over the over the river, with enough irrigation, um, it it kind of was slowed down by actually being in the city of Los Angeles, not being a separate city, um, and uh, being a kind of afterthought. Um, for Los Angeles, in fact, that's one of the reasons why the cemetery was built out in at the edge of Boyle Heights because they figured that's the the, the farthest place that uh, the city's going to going to uh, develop, and so we can we can put Evergreen Cemetery out there uh, as one of the city's first uh, large cemeteries. Um, but uh, essentially, as investors started to realize by the 1890s and the 1900s that that Boyle Heights was not going to be attracting a large number of very well-off Anglo uh, homeowners, um, the people that owned property uh, started to build smaller plots and started to focus on industrial development of Los Angeles. And they um, they began to see it see it as a place that could um, attract immigrants that began to come into Boyle Heights uh, to take advantage of the growing industrial um factories that were developing um, along uh, in the downtown area and in, in areas along the river um, and the railroads. Um, and so as other neighborhoods were uh, being built up and were being built up with racially restrictive covenants that kept uh, African-Americans, Latinos, Asian-Americans, and many other white ethnic groups out of those neighborhoods, Boyle Heights was remained open. To most. So it was one of the few neighborhoods in Los Angeles, mo- almost all on the east side or the south side, that uh, welcomed everyone essentially to Boyle Heights um, and uh, therefore uh, became uh, a place that everyone landed. Um, uh, Russian Molokans uh, fleeing Russia from the Russo Japanese War, Mexican immigrants coming up from the Mexican Revolution, a- uh, African Americans who came. Um, uh, escaping some of the violence of the of the South, particularly in urban areas, uh, Japanese who uh, were fleeing a Japan that was uh, industrializing its agriculture, and then seeing that the situation was better here than it was in Hawaii for, for many of those uh, agricultural workers, uh, Jews who who were fleeing pogroms in Eastern Europe, um, and then and then moving west from Eastern cities, uh, Italians. Uh, the same kind of industrial change um, and a host of other uh, European ethnics uh, coming in, um, it became a place all those folks could land uh, relatively um, uh, good uh, housing and uh, close to jobs in, in industrial Los Angeles as that, as that was developing. And so in the teens and the 20s, that's really who became to, began to dominate Boyle Heights, a, a rather... Uh, uh, incredible mix from all over the world
1: thanks you you mentioned there um, you know how Boyle Heights loses out you know again in this competition you know for uh, again affluent white migrants mostly coming from uh, you know Midwest but other parts of the country the South uh, east etc um, in uh, it's early on in the book that you refer to Los Angeles as an innovator um, right in in racial inequity and in, in racial formation um, for uh, early Los Angeles and uh, and in the nation as it is. So tell us a bit more about that's not what most people think about when they think about the history of, of Los Angeles or Southern California broadly, right? That you have cities in Los, in Southern California broadly that are innovating racial exclusion and and leading to what you develop you you call urban apartheid. Can you speak more about how did that work? What did they do in in uh you know southern california particularly without you know, again the cover of you know say jim crow laws like they had in the south
0: sure um well what los angeles became known for two two very specific things one was that it it um it innovated uh the use of urban zoning so that uh large parts of los angeles um industry was zoned out of it. And particularly here, the west side of Los Angeles became an area where it became very difficult to build um, industrial uh, factories um, in areas that were seen as really uh, for residential use only. And industry itself was restricted to um, certain areas like the downtown area, like the area along the Los Angeles River, like the port area. Um, and, uh, most of Los Angeles was therefore zoned for, um, for residences alone and small businesses. And this started with, with even restrictions against Chinese laundries in Mm -hmm. lots, large parts of Los Angeles. So there was a whole history of zoning where Los Angeles was one of the innovators, uh, in the world on that kind of zoning. The second had to do with uh, racial restrictions in home ownership. So to go along with the fact that only some areas were zoned for, um, for exclusively uh, single-family homes, the other thing you got is that th- they were not yet developed, so they were being built and embedded in, in their uh, construction in their initial um, uh, paperwork uh, to be bought and sold Were restrictive covenants against certain races, um, uh, first being in, um, you know, purchasing them and then eventually uh, in in actually uh, living in homes. Um, And so you had Los Angeles most, because it was developing in the late 19th and early 20th century, a lot of the homes were new, but right off the bat, these whole swaths of community had racially restrictive covenants. And in fact, I go over in the book how some areas, um, you know, this is a dependent on people following up in the law. And some areas were seen as almost examples of what you shouldn't do uh, because they, the, the, the courts were willing to take um, people's homes away from them if, in fact, that, that uh, law had been violated. Mm-hmm. So um, very clearly, uh, African-Americans were restricted uh, tremendously to where they could purchase homes, Um, but so were Latinos, so were Asian Americans, and uh, in most parts of Los Angeles, so were Jews and Italians. Um, And there were brand new areas on the south side and Palos Verdes and so forth, where there was just very strict racial restrictions on who could purchase, and that wouldn't go away until um, the World War II era. Um, Over time, even as things um, changed, the leader in this was the real estate um, companies, mm-hmm. and partic- particularly the Los Angeles Realty Board um, would really uh, come down very hard on any realtor who who would sell uh, uh, against these restrictions. And even as uh, those uh, those laws were were deemed as. Um, they were essentially deemed in the World War II era as as being unconstitutional, not because they had racial restriction, but because they limited uh, capitalism. They limited right. who could buy and sell, like liberty of contract, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so um, uh, it wasn't so much about the restri- the racial restriction. So <laughs> even as that uh, went away, um, they found other ways in which to um, restrict. Uh, the, the purchasing, the buying and selling of, of homes. Um, and uh, during the World War II era, eventually uh, the European ethnics uh, were allowed into a lot of neighborhoods they had not been allowed to, into before on the west side of Los Angeles and the San Fernando Valley as it started to develop. But Mexicans, Blacks were still kept fairly rigidly um, restricted in terms of where they could purchase um, uh, it, with, with what was now... Uh, redlining um sort of uh focused on communities that were seen as riskier mm-hmm. by the federal government and the real estate industry and the, the the banks now offering mortgages um so again this changes over the course of the 20th century but the the pattern remains the same that there's more restriction in other area in other areas and so mexicans and african americans in particular are kept um in communities like Boyle Heights, uh, even as other groups that had lived there, like Jews, Italians, are allowed to to move into other places.
1: Yeah, you know that's this history you know, strikes so close to home for my 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 family, particularly my dad's family. My dad grew up in in uh, L.A. broadly uh, in the San Fernando Valley, actually. And um, I've, I'm trying to remember when he first shared this story with me, but it's probably near um, when I was getting close to adulthood where, you know, he told me about his parents. Both his parents came from um, southern Colorado. They're both, I mean, uh, you know, uh, they're Mexican-American um, and they uh, both actually college-educated, you know, from very small college, Adams State College, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but they come to L.A., you know, in the post-war period. Actually, during the war, and some of my, my grandmother's sisters, so my great-aunts, you know, they are Rosie the Riveters, right? Or yeah. Rosita, right? Riveters. And they're looking to buy a home, you know, uh, during this period, right? Uh, shortly after the war, um, like maybe some others, maybe a little flush with cash, but trying to capitalize off of the, you know, this government kind of aided expansion of suburban America, and they're 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 shut out of it, you know. Racially restrictive covenants um, are, you know, either that or, um, you know, again, just the the racism of the real estate industry. People flat out refusing to show them homes in certain neighborhoods and I mean, the only way, perhaps, that they they don't end up, uh, you know, staying in East LA is they were able to find a housing track in Northridge that the de- where the developer was Jewish, and right. was willing to sell right to Mexican Americans. I mean, a very common story, I think, in perhaps LA for some ethnic groups. Ken um, and I, I want to segue this into a, into the uh, a discussion of what you describe in the book is, you know, Boyle Heights develops because of this very uh, again, very eclectic and diverse mix of, of these migrants, as you explained, um, you know, coming from all over Europe, particularly, um, uh, you know, very working class, um, you know, also many of them leftists um, and kind of mixing into East LA, which, you know, has Mexicans, you know, has eventually there's there's African-Americans that are moving in, you know, at that time too. So Boyle Heights is developing at this type of multiracial space and you, you describe it as there's a type of multiracial fellowship um, that develops in Boyle Heights, but that that's existing at the same time of this dualism of this racialized urban apartheid in, in broader LA, you know, that you can have these two things going on, a, a really deeply segregated, um, again, Los Angeles, where, you know, the more diverse Boyle Heights become, it's kind of confirming uh, it's this own racialized stereotype that's being developed around it. That's the space for non-whites or non-anglo Saxons, right? Um, but then also in Boyle Heights, it's it's also developing as a space where there are conflicts, there are there struggles, and there's even divisions within the community. But there is this sense of multiracial fellowship that is developing. Can you discuss those those things happening at the same time? You know, sure, sure.
0: Um, so. I think, in many ways, the 1920s is a period in which um, you've got these different people pouring into Boyle Heights, but the system seems to be working in that you know people are finding employment, they're near uh, places where they can work, uh, they're able to settle in Boyle Heights into various kinds of homes—some uh, renting, some some purchasing homes—and um, the community seems to be working. Um, it, it The largest part of the community is Jewish. It's for, about forty percent of the population uh, by 1930, um, and Jews are coming with a variety of uh, backgrounds. And this, is particularly for working class Jews, there's other Jewish uh, communities on the West Side that are that are attached to Hollywood, which are much more um, exclusive and upper income. But the working class Jews tend to be moving in where they work in the garment industry downtown, or they work in other industries. Um, uh, that's that's who's moving into Boyle Heights, along with Mexicans, Italians, uh, African Americans, other people. Um, what really happens is that the labor unions start to develop also in Boyle Heights because of that history that those groups are bringing in. The, the particularly the Jewish migrants will bring in the garment workers, the the carpenters union, the the hatters, uh, all the different groups, and Boyle Heights becomes becomes in the late twenty by the late twenties a place for union activity in a city which is notoriously anti-union. It is very much an open shop city, a place in which the city leaders don't want to see union activity, um, even as they're developing industry. Um, There's not huge conflicts. uh, I mean, there's huge conflicts around this issue early in the 20th century, but then the real conflicts begin to develop in the 1930s. When um, the economy uh, goes south and uh, people are struggling, Uh, there are no jobs anymore and people are struggling within that. So you have in the 1930s um, more militant unionism, um, more attempts to make those unions multiracial. At the same time, uh, the government is looking for scapegoats. And of course, Mexican repatriation happens in the early 1930s. Where Mexicans are targeted, often Mexicans from Boyle Heights, particularly the flats area of Boyle Heights, um, trying to be thrown out by the government, seen as well. If we if we lose these folks, somehow um, we will recover from the depression. Of course, the depression is a much larger uh, cataclysmic event than that. Um, you get you get local solutions, supposed solutions that um, don't work, but that still attack. Uh, communities in Boyle Heights, from Mexican repatriation then to eventually what you would have is Japanese internment in the 1940s, where um, people who live in Boyle Heights are really targeted as part of the problem. Um, and what then develops is that people begin to do a lot more work across these ethnic groups in labor unions, in other entities, and eventually in civil rights organizations to protect the neighborhood and to try to um, uh, protect kind of a working class sensibility in the neighborhood itself. Um, So Boyle Heights becomes, in the the 1930s, one of the principal places that um, a commitment to Franklin Roosevelt and the Democratic Party um, and the New Deal sort of takes hold, especially uh, FDR's um, commitment to uh, unionism as being part of the New Deal coalition. And you get the development, particularly of second generation uh, ethnic Americans, Mexican Americans, Jewish Americans, as part of the New Deal coalition. People seeing that relationship to to politics as being absolutely critical. And then, of course, when the war hits, um, you get uh, a variety of people uh, sort of signing up for that war in various kinds of ways. Um, So... Throughout this whole period, you, you're the neighborhood is sort of coming together even more decidedly um, to protect its own and to try to take care of of folks who who are in need in in the neighborhood and people seeing that um, that there you know there there is a time for kind of working class people to kind of uh, bind themselves together and that's really what's happening. And that's a deep legacy in Boyle Heights. It continues well into the end of the twentieth century.
1: You mentioned repatriation and uh, internment. Um, you know these are things that sure many of our listeners have. I um, mean that is specifically repatriation of Mexicans, not just Mexican national, but but U.S. citizens with a you know Mexican ethnicity during the de- depression uh, to Mexico, and as well as, of course the internment of Japanese Americans. Um, you, so you mentioned these things, these are things that are, that are experienced within this one community. On top of that, there's kind of this one, two, three combo of, um, that you discussed, there's not only repatriation in the thirties, there's also again, internment in the forties during the war, but a lot of throughout this process, you know, beginning in the thirties and, and later on, you have, you know, urban development or redevelopment or slum clearance, right? Um, right. So this one community is experiencing all of these things. Um, can you discuss just, I mean, what did that mean to you as you, uh, you know, as you're, you're studying this area and you're speaking with people that have experienced all three of these things, right? Um, um, things and key moments, key developments in American history, um, but rarely, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, do we find one community that was so where where the impact of these things have been so concentrated.
0: Right. Um, Part of what I thought was important for me to identify is that um, city leaders and often the very same city leaders um, see the populations in Boyle Heights as disposable. Um, Boyle Heights is right across the river from downtown Los Angeles, where City Hall is, where county uh, offices are. And so often it's like the first area that one thinks of for renewal. And renewal often means if we move out this population, then new visions of what might be in the future for Los Angeles can be constructed. And that has an influence in why Boyle Heights is targeted for Mexican repatriation, but why also, um, you know, the the Japanese American community is going to be particularly focused on uh, in internment. Um, And and the removal of those folks uh, will will take place with some of the same officials that actually had organized um, Mexican repatriation, Uh, the same city city and county uh, officials, the same departments of social services. Um, In addition, you've got the movement, movement out of people because that's the same period that begins the process of building freeways. And then during the war of constructing public housing, that will first displace areas seen as as slums. All of this is kind of in a larger framework of seeing areas that are disposable and people that are disposable that can be moved around at will um, without really taking much into account in terms of their rights. Um, And uh, that includes, of course, the fact that two-thirds of the people repatriated were actually born in the United States so that they're being moved back to a, deported to a to a country they'd never been to. And of course the same goes for internment, which is two thirds of the people who are sent away in internment are US born um, Japanese Americans. Um, their citizenship uh, doesn't matter a whole lot in this uh, kind of configuration of the 1930s and 40s. And I think that's a critical thing to keep in mind. And so even as this group is living in a community supporting FDR, thinking of itself as very American, and, and, and Boyle Heights is the quintessential American community, they are shocked by what the government would do to their uh, neighbors, sometimes to themselves. So to just to use um, the high school, Roosevelt High School as an example, you know, one third of the high school in 1942 was Japanese American. And so when people saw that it was their student body president or their um, newspaper um, editor that was removed uh, uh, as uh, possibly enemies of the state, they just didn't believe it. They, they it was it it didn't make sense to them. And this is even in a community that was forty percent Jewish, in which Jews are signing up to fight for uh, the U.S. during World War II. at a huge clip. Um, you had people visiting. Um, their, their neighbors and their classmates um, at Santa Anita racetrack in the summer of 42 on a regular basis. Um, you had all of this kind of uh, sense that this was an attack on, on people that were close to them um, and that, uh, you know, it, it violated parts of what they thought wa- was uh, American society. Um, and so uh, I'm very intrigued by that tension um, in kind of neighborhood identity uh that of course you know it's a wartime, and so lots of things are changing and happening but it it uh it kind of um it, these things sort of go together particularly from the vantage point of seeing the way that local officials treated this particular community um as as uh utterly able to 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 be able to be moved about like this um and literally the same officials. Um, I I do some work on John Anson Ford, who's a L.A. Mm -hmm. County supervisor who comes in in 1934. And uh, he is trying to resurrect Mexican repatriation throughout his his tenure. And in fact, he finds himself on December 7th, 1941, in Mexico trying to strike a new deal for repatriation when Pearl Harbor happens. And all of a sudden he has to come back and immediately... um, he, he tra- transfers into trying to find solutions uh, because the first impl- uh, impulse of the government is to um, arrest uh, people who were well-known in the community because they were uh, religious leaders, civic leaders, and that leaves a lot of Japanese-American families without the head of the household. And all of a sudden, the, the county has to take care of these families that were left that way. Well, okay, so maybe we should move them. Maybe we should uh, push them together and have the government take care of, you know, this the same kind of impetus that uh, had happened in Mexican repatriation. So uh, I'm very intrigued by the interconnections of this, uh, often with the same government officials.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are several parts of, uh, you know, this part of the book that really, um, I think, shook me. I mean, One of them, I mean, just the as you mentioned, the letters that occurred between classmates of, uh you know Japanese peers that were interned writing to you know their classmates whether african-american uh Mexican or some other ethnicity about what their experience was like again uh, some of these classmates going to visit visit them I mean that just shocked me it's it's what I love about uh frankly I think studying and exploring history I'm just i'm I'm always surprised um you know they're were there some of those moments for you? I mean, I don't know, was it the John Anson Ford story too? I forget, he's got this, uh, there's a friend of his that's Japanese American. And so he has like some type of friendship with them. I, I can't remember if it's a business relationship or what, but his, this own close associate of his is also interned. And, you know, this associate writes him a letter, right? Trying yep. to explain him what this process of, of like, about how his rights have been stripped from him. But meanwhile, they have this, again, long relationship uh, and you just feel the tension, uh, you know, again, in that letter of, of what's going on uh, you know, in this period. I mean, so again, just any other moments like that, just, just you come across a document, you hear, again, one of those experiences just, I mean, you know about these developments, you've, you've known about them for a long time, but just they just shake you and they, re, they really reposition your view of how people are experiencing this on the ground in, in a whole new light. The, the the story, uh,
0: you know, there's a, there's those, of course, of people who are on the, uh, you know, in the government. It, it gives you a sense that that, you know, Japanese Americans are integrated into the life of Los Angeles, and of this neighborhood. In a way, it's not simply a separate entity and a separate community, but it's mixed. Um, and and um, I like to always refer to the story of Molly Wilson, who's this African-American teenager who I met um when she was in her 70s, and brought us these letters uh, to an event that I sponsored. Uh, And these were the return letters from uh, her Japanese American classmates from internment camps. She She had been furious because her closest friends, as she entered Roosevelt High School, were being taken away from her. So she decided as a personal protest to write them each week. And so she had all of the return letters that came from her friends, and she they're now deposited in the Japanese American National Museum Library. Um, but, you know, there was always this interesting kind of dynamic because you don't think of, you know, girl friendships as p- having that power, particularly for 15, 16, 17 year olds. But here you had this real impact on this one African-American young woman who felt, you know, my friendships are being violated. And I, and I thought about that for a very long time. And um, we kept wanting to interview her with her friends. And we finally were able to do that through the Japanese American National Museum. And it turns out that they told the story, the the Japanese American friends that made everything make sense in that Molly had grown up um, in Boyle Heights and they had all gone to middle school together before high school Mm -hmm. at Holland Beck Junior High School. And, um, you know, Molly had experienced racism. At the junior high, she had been a very popular kid. She was going to uh, be running for a student body president, and in, in the middle school, uh, clearly she would win. And the principal called her in and and suggested that she not run; that it wouldn't be a good symbol for the for the school. That Molly became um, the the class president at Hollandbeck High School, uh, Hollandbeck Junior High. This is the late 1930s. And, you know, Molly was very proud. Her parents had taught her to be proud. She, she sort of left, didn't know what to do. And her friends, all of whom were also very popular, Japanese American students, um, said, Molly, you know, we're not running for anything. We're all boycotting the student government election. If They won't let you become president. And so they all stood, stood by her. And it made now for me sense of why as she was going into high school, she wanted to protest her her um, her wonderful friends and classmates being sent away um, because these people had already stood up for her. And so that's that gives you a sense of how friendships are constructed at those ages and how powerful they are. Um, You know, these are not uh, simply bystanders. These are people whose lives are intertwined with each other and have supported each other, even through tough times. Um, And so the violation of one or the other is going to make a huge difference for people. And I think that's the way the Japanese-American internment felt for a lot of the people that grew up in Boyle Heights. It felt like a violation of their community and their friendships. Um, And Molly's life kind of spoke to that in really powerful ways.
1: I love that story. Thanks for sharing with it, sharing it, you know, here for our audience. And it's it's definitely one of the strongest that comes across in uh, in the book itself. I'm thinking about, um, you know, the post-war transitions that occur in Boyle Heights. You mentioned at one point Jews are 40 percent, uh, Jewish Americans are 40 percent of the population. Um but then, very quickly, right over the post-war decades of the '50s and '60s, with this, you know, vast, you know, again, suburbanization uh, and economic expansion, post-war expansion that occurs, um, the demographics of of uh, Boyle Heights changed drastically. So, could you, you know, speak to that? And then also, what did that mean to um, kind of the? How did that change in ways? the political culture of, I don't know if that's the right question, but it definitely, the demographics are changing. And then, so these type of coalitions that are formed, you know, in the twenties, thirties, forties, et cetera, they're very multiracial. Um, they still have to be for some time in, in the fifties and sixties, but it starts to change, doesn't it? There's, it, there's a, it, a demographic change that's creating a different political calculus that's occurring there.
0: Right. It does. It does start to change. But what's interesting to me is that um, it actually changes more towards a real movement and interaction across, uh, particularly between Jews and Mexicans uh, that you might say is more to the left and and more powerful. What happens is that the first Jews that move out, of course, are the ones that are less political, more religious. The Orthodox community moves out fairly quickly uh, during the war and then immediately after the war. Um, But Boyle Heights becomes begins to be seen as a place that, well, this is a place where Yiddish culture, leftist culture, radical culture still exists. And in fact, it's one of the few areas in the anti-communist late 40s and 1950s, one of the few areas that uh, still has a kind of leftist tradition. So leftist Jews actually stay. They stay longer than anyone else. And um, that has a lot of repercussions for Boyle Heights. It leads directly to... One thing is that is that both communities sort of feel like the empowerment of Mexican-Americans is absolutely critical to the future of Los Angeles. And through the community services organization, people in both the Mexican community, the Mexican-American community, and the Jewish community begin to organize to try to find a leader that they can put into the city council that would represent the neighborhood. And they choose Edward Roybal, who loses in 1947, but then between 47 and 49, There's a whole effort to to, um, get uh, Mexican-American voters registered in massive numbers, and he will end up winning the election in 1949 for city council from the region. Um, What I find fascinating about that is that, that, yes, it's about Mexican-American empowerment, and it's critically brought uh, together by a group of uh, union-affiliated Mexican-Americans, but at the same time, it's also uh, being funded Um, and supported by a larger Jewish-American contingent, some of whom are still in Boyle Heights, some who have a history with Boyle Heights. Um, uh, uh, And uh, that becomes a way of kind of moving things forward. There's also other organizations that try to maintain themselves even as Jews are moving out. The Michigan Soto Jewish Community Center is a key one where It kind of leads in all kinds of multiracial activities during the uh, late 40s and 50s. And then very left organizations like the Committee for the Protection of the Foreign-Born that um, uh, has communist and socialist members, and it's trying to protect people who are going to suffer under the McCurran-Walter Act and and be deported because of their left activity. Um, And uh, they're supporting Mexicans, Jews, Italians, other people who are Japanese, or being targeted for deportation, even though they might have become U.S. citizens. Um, and so it becomes a really fascinating place in the 40s and 50s uh, to watch this transformation occur. As the community becomes more Mexican, it also becomes in some ways more politicized. And Roy Ball is kind of the, the chief person there. He often is alone on his votes in the city council. He often, for example, he, he he's the only city council person who's against a communist registration act that gets passed. Um, he's the one that's trying to defend uh, Mexicans who are being sent away from Chavez Ravine. Uh, he's the one trying to stop the freeway construction that's uh, plowing through Boyle Heights. So um, though he's often voting alone or with very few liberals, um, he uh, his power comes from this community that is really organized uh, to support those actions and he's able to do quite a bit in kind of integrating Boral Heights into the larger uh, political stratum of of at least getting um, city services uh, uh, to to Boral Heights
1: I'm um. Yeah, as you're as you're covering that, I'm also th- you know so we have this transition in the post-war period, particularly of right Boyle Heights becoming increasingly more Mexican, coming to look a lot like the East LA that perhaps most of our listeners are most familiar with, um, and this is again a, 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 just a microcosm of of again transformations that are occurring uh, throughout the the country. Which you do a great job of connecting what's going on in Boyle Heights, you know, to the larger national and um, and transnational movements. And so I'm thinking of Boyle Heights, again, as this place that, as you described, for this multi development of this multiracial type of progressive democratic culture, right, from, uh, again, these you know, expatriates, if you will, or right migrants from all over, you know, southern and eastern Europe, right, from uh, Japan, again, migrants from Mexico and African-Americans. So that's, you know, this, this Boyle Heights of kind of the middle, early to middle 20th century. And then we have this transition to Again, an increasingly much more, you know, Mexican but Latino and immigrant dominant Boyle Heights. Can you explain how that, again, that 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 took this pro- this development of this multiracial, progressive, democratic uh, type of you know culture and added you know the, the whole like transnational aspect on it, right? Where yeah. I mean, Boyle Heights comes to you know represent in many ways. I'm thinking as we're talking here. Kind of the, these key transitions in the Democratic Party if you will and you know this push towards increasing the multiracialism and now one would argue a type of you know transnationalism you know in some extent you know that the, the yeah. forcing the party to to realize it's the politics just go beyond even nationality but Boyle Heights is, it seems to be like the epicenter uh, in many ways of, of this type of these transformative movements so Part
0: of what happens um, is those public housing
1: units that were
0: constructed in the World War II era uh, by the 50s and 60s now are housing some of the the most vulnerable migrants to Los Angeles. And that that includes both uh, Mexican uh, immigrants and particularly Mexicans coming out of the Bracero program, but also uh, African-Americans coming up from the south. Um, And so they become multiracial in a different way with both African-Americans and and Mexican-Americans. And that leads directly to the student movements uh, in the East L.A. schools. And I look particularly at Roosevelt and Garfield and and, uh, Lincoln High School, um, where there's a student walkouts in 1968. um, Really, with Mexican-Americans learning from what they've seen in terms of the Watts riots, and in terms of the war on poverty uh, uh, protests that were in the, the mid-60s, um, leading directly into a public posture of, of walking out of their high schools to protest the, the horrible uh, teaching conditions, the uh, learning conditions they had in those, in those schools. Um, that's very much a, a part of this transfer to a transnationalism because it Though it involves Mexican-Americans primarily and African-Americans, it's also in the wake of, of continued movement at the very same time of now a new Mexican immigrant community coming in the post-65 era, uh, many of whom are undocumented. Mm-hmm. And so in the 60s, the late seven, the 70s and, and 80s, then you've got a whole movement, um, even as the Chicano movement sort of takes hold in Los Angeles in the, in the late 60s and 70s you've now got new um, Mexican immigrants who are undocumented, forming a larger and larger proportion of the Boyle Heights population. And I trace that through a lot of things, through um, issues that were happening um, uh, at USC Medical Center with the forced sterilization of Mexican immigrant women. Um, and eventually, in the 80s and 90s, with um, the uh, creation of new uh organizations, new political organizations that try to once again protect the neighborhood, but now not focus so much like the community service organization was on on registering people to vote or um, uh, naturalization, but rather on a politics of non-electoral democracy. And so the Mothers of East LA uh, formed in 1986, um, continuing on to, to try to keep uh, city uh, and and state officials from putting a prison in East Los Angeles or then toxic waste facilities, they're a key part of this coming out of the Catholic parishes uh, in Boyle Heights, and really uh, pushing city leaders, uh, city county and state officials uh, not to put these kind of uh, eyesores uh, for the community into neighborhoods in or near Boyle Heights. And then also I'm interested in the development of Homeboy Industries in the, in the 90s because um, uh, Father Gregory Boyle, who starts Homeboy Industries as an alternative for young uh, uh, gang members away from gangs and towards jobs, he's very interested in the fact that uh, these folks coming out of mixed status families, um, undocumented families, often don't have a lot of options in terms of the, the economic jobs they might get. And so he's very much that this is a product of what these folks in the 1990s are confronting. And he needs to provide other alternatives that are more positive for them. So um, you get this real transition. But again, Borough Heights people coming together to find new strategies to try to incorporate its residents into a political force to protect the neighborhood. That's kind of what I'm most interested in. And I think what's the carryover from the earlier period even though you, these are off, obviously newcomers to Borough Heights.
1: No, definitely. Yeah. It seems that there's, right. The newcomers are, if you will, they acculturate into that type of that culture, that multiracial, um, uh, you know, type of, you know, culture of, of appreciated, appreciation of, you um, you know, fighting for each other, sharing an experience. Um, you know, on top of that, we haven't talked much about it, but I mean, the role of women in all of these struggles, you, you do such a phenomenal job, you know, weaving this as a, a thread throughout the book. Um, women in, you know, 19, the 1930s in the labor industry, um, what's the ILGWU, Writer, others. Um, you know, inspiring future generations, you know, their daughters or other young women in the community that eventually lead the blowouts, right? Or the student protests or, right. you know, come to, right, form Mothers of East LA or, you know, they're running for public office. And, and but coming from, you know, Boyle Heights and East LA broadly with all these strong women involved in these progressive social movements, right? They're the at the forefront of seeing the need of, of combining all these issues, right? That it's, this is not just, immigration is not one issue and, you know, youth criminalization or mass incarceration is on another issue or, right. Um, environmental, you know, destruction. I mean, All these are things that are being faced by this community. Uh, women are at the forefront of this, this whole thing. I mean, that's just another uh, thread and theme that's all throughout this book. That's right. And, and,
0: you know, it, it means that you have to dig to get those stories. You have to find it both mm-hmm. in the archives, but also particularly in oral histories and in telling this, and really listening to all the people who are who are actively involved, I think that's that's the the benefit of of the time that I took and the and the um, real power of those stories in shaping a neighborhood in a community. When we take it at that level, you see the consistency of of uh, women's activism pretty pretty regularly.
1: Well, certainly, right? Because it's often it's not in you know the know, the most traditional type of archives, right? The public records often that that you see that. it's it's in talking to uh, people within the community, people that led these struggles that experienced this history. They're the ones that tell you, right, Oh, yeah, you need to know about so and so, right? So and so did this, but you know, he or she's not in any of the other documents. right. That's so correct. speaking again to all that public history work you did and and the time it takes, yes, to to, to craft a narrative and and a history in this way. Um, that covers so much. You know, our time is short, and I want to get your take as we we pull back and look at the again the broader significance of of this book in Boyle Heights. Um, you know, as you describe uh, both the beginning and the end. You know, Boyle Heights is a sort of laboratory uh, of multiracial democracy, right? That um, is occurring all throughout, right, the, the, much of this 20th century and, and now into the 21st century. And I can't help but think of the you know your book. Um, coming out now at this time when it seems to me, those of us that are from California, right, we're very familiar with Proposition 187 uh, from the mid-90s that sought to uh, criminalize um, uh, undocumented immigrants and strip social services, uh, public services from them, public education, uh, health, um, uh, any type of you know medical care. It, it sought to turn these agencies into uh, kind of like deputized, right, um, the Border Patrol. It... it I mentioned this because to me it seems, and maybe to some of us it seems like, you know, the country as a whole is having this Prop 187 moment, right? This backlash uh, against the increasing demographic change, uh, not just multiracialism, but, you know, kind of the, the vast you know, multiculturalism, um, multiculturalism that's been occurring for decades, uh, the, the transnational movement of people. And I just want to get your thoughts on, you know, Boyle Heights as again this this laboratory of democracy. What's the message you hope um, readers take away from it? Reading it within this context, you know, we are not out of Trump's America uh, not by a long shot, right? right. Uh, we are not against this backlash again against this you know diversification. Something that Boyle Heights is a case in point has been experiencing for decades, right, through these right. global and domestic transformations.
0: Well, I think, you know, the United States is in a critical crossroads at this point where it has to learn what is it going to mean for us to be a multiracial democracy, you know, as if we move forward. And can we do it? You know, it's a question mark. And how do we learn? And I think you learn from communities like Boyle Heights. You learn to see what it's done over time and what it's done recently to integrate all kinds of residents into a, a sense of, uh, community pride, in terms of uh, neighborhood resilience, um, in terms of a place that uh, families will be proud to raise their children in, and that where you have people on a regular day-to-day basis really struggling but, but fighting to, uh, to survive and to prosper. Um, for their for their family and for the future generations, that to me, is what a multiracial democracy has to be. It's not going to just happen out of Washington or out of Sacramento. It's got to happen at the neighborhood level. It's got to happen with people coming ac- uh, uh, you know across their differences and really working together and finding common goals and and common solutions to problems that that most neighborhoods are facing in this country. So, um, I think that's why uh, a, a, com- a history of, of Boyle Heights is so important, because I think you can learn how this particular neighborhood overcome its, overcame its differences, uh, really fought together um, uh, despite poverty, despite, um, you know, uh, differences in the neighborhood. Uh, it really fought to, to survive and to, to prosper. Um, and I think that that's, that's a critical lesson to be learned in today's United States. Um, while people think that it's, you know, the, the solutions are sometimes to, to become more nativist, to, to force people out. I tend to think that a multiracial democracy is to try to find methods of inclusion that really fortify our experiences as Americans and as, um, you know, uh, families and, and, and residents that can come together and learn how to thrive together, um, and I think, you know, you saw that through the pandemic, you saw that in Boyle Heights um, across the board, uh, and, and you increasingly just see it on a day-to-day level. It's from communities like Boyle Heights that we're going to learn that the a multiracial democracy is, is our future if we are willing to, to do that kind of work that, that is required to keep a democracy alive. Um, and so that's what I hope people take from the book.
1: Well, George, thank you for uh, your time and uh, for you know sharing both uh, you know your thoughts and experiences with this this wonderful book. I appreciate you coming on New Books Latino Studies.
0: Thank you. It was a pleasure.